please, people of God, turn your Bibles in the first place this morning to Isaiah 61. We read Isaiah 61 a few weeks ago when we began uh, the introduction to the Beatitudes, but now we return to the chapter once again, particularly in connection with what Jesus says concerning those who mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's illustrated in the first place in Isaiah 61. Beginning at verse 1, we'll read through the end of verse 7. This is God's holy word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. Let's turn also to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21 at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God's holy word. May he bless it to us as we meditate upon it this morning. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're confronted once again this morning with yet another gospel paradox, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a paradox because in our Western world today, as much as it was in Jesus' day, we typically associate comfort with laughter, not mourning. We typically associate comfort with, all, with good times and all the pleasant amenities that the Western world has to offer. 
if the world were to write their own list of beatitudes, they would say, blessed are the happy. And so happiness is the mask that most people around us, you'll, you'll see wearing on their faces. That's the, the mask you'll see on most people's Facebook profiles, whether that's true to their reality or not. Blessed are the happy. And we're tempted into falling into that same trap. Blessed are the happy. To fall into that, that trap of the world that says, blessed are those who, who are happy, who find themselves in this constant state of, of joy and, and accomplishment. But that's not what Jesus says here, is it? In fact, if you turn over to Luke's version of this beatitude in Luke chapter 6, this beatitude concerning mourning is actually put this way, blessed are those who weep now. Blessed are those who weep now, for they shall laugh. But woe to those who laugh now, for they shall weep and mourn. And so the question before us this morning is similar to the question we had before us last time with regards to the poor in spirit. Namely, who are they? Who are these mourners? What kind of weeping is our Lord talking about? What kind of mourning does Christ have in view when he makes this paradoxical statement that those who mourn are those who are blessed by God? Well, boys and girls, to answer that question, you have to ask in the first place, what does the Bible tell us about mourning? The Bible says a great deal about mourning, doesn't it? The Bible says a, a great deal about crying, about grieving. In fact, the Bible probably says more about mourning and lamenting than the Bible says about laughing. And when the Bible does speak about laughing, when the Bible does speak about rejoicing and great joy, it's often the context of, of mourning and lamenting having been taken away, having been released. The psalmist, for example, says in Psalm 30 that weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The psalmist says elsewhere in Psalm 126, where am I? Oh, the psalmist says in Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Prophet Jeremiah spoke similarly in Jeremiah 31. The Lord spoke of a coming day when Israel's mourning would then be transformed into rejoicing. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from the hands too strong from him, for him. Therefore they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Their life shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall languish no more. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for their sorrow. That's the typical pattern that you'll discover. And it's this principle that, that mourning in the present leads to comfort in the future that our Lord is, is pressing upon us here. This was the burden in the days of the prophet Isaiah. His burden was to, was to urge God's people to, to look forward, to look forward to that, that coming day, to that day of, of the, the year of the Lord's favor. When mourning would be no more. God would comfort those who mourn. That's the message of Revelation 21. Those who mourn in the present will indeed be comforted in the future. All their tears will be wiped away from their eyes. And there will be no more mourning or crying anymore for the former things will have passed away. 
And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. He's teaching us that gospel comfort is available to one kind of people and one kind of people only. Namely those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we have to recognize as we seek to discern what kind of mourning our Lord is talking about here is that the first beatitude, you could say, naturally leads to the second. With the rest of the beatitudes, these beatitudes go hand in hand. And so the blessed mourners described in this beatitude are those whose poverty of spirit has caused them to to grieve over their sin and over all the, the tragic effects that sin has had, not only on their own lives, but, but in, in the world. That's the kind of mourning that Jesus has in view here. This is the kind of mourning that Christ says is characteristic of, of every citizen belonging to his kingdom. This is the kind of mourning that, that characterizes every child of God in whom the Spirit of God has has caused that child to be born again. They all have have this in common. They mourn. They mourn over the the offense of sin. They mourn over all the brokenness that sin has has brought into the world. And so the saint's heart is a hurting heart. The saint's heart is a hurting heart that aches with pain because having seen something of the grace and glory in the face of Jesus Christ, The saint now sees his sin in a whole new light. And the saint sees how ugly his or her sin really is. And when the saint considers all the the damage that his sin has done, his heart aches with sorrow and grief for having offended the majesty of the Most High God. You see, Jesus is not in virtue of this beatitude placing God's blessing upon every kind of of mourning under the sun, for there are kinds of mourning that that God does not bless. For example, there's there's a mourning that's a mourning unto despair that God does not bless. Think of the the mourning of, of Judas Iscariot after he betrayed his Lord. Matthew 27 records that when Judas Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas confessed his sin. He had great sorrow and regret for what he had done. But in his sorrow, Judas did not look to the Lord for grace. Judas drowned in his tears, believing that that he was beyond the reach of, of the Savior's healing hand. That's not the kind of mourning that Jesus has in view here. Another kind of mourning that God doesn't bless is a hypocritical kind of mourning. God is gracious to comfort the hurting heart, but not the hypocritical heart. Think, for example, of King Ahab in 1 Kings 21. After he's confronted by Elijah having murdered Naboth, he, he mourns, he puts on this outward display of mourning, he, he rends his garments but not his heart. He does not humble his heart before the Lord in true contrition over his sin. Boys and girls, it's natural to cry when you've gotten in trouble. It's natural to cry when you've gotten a spanking. But that's not the kind of mourning that Jesus is describing here. The kind of mourning that Jesus is describing is a mourning that's not just over the the consequences of sin, but a mourning over the ugliness of sin. A sorrow over the, over the sin itself. 
God has not promised to comfort everyone who mourns for every reason, but only those who mourn for the right reason, namely the offense of sin and the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. And that's why you could say at this that the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, naturally leads to the second, blessed are those who mourn. Because when the child of God is confronted with his poverty of spirit, when the child of God sees that she is totally spiritually bankrupt, totally unfit and unworthy for the kingdom, she mourns. The child of God mourns with godly sorrow that brings repentance, leading to salvation. The child of God doesn't make excuses for his sins or belittle his sins as though his sins aren't really such a big deal. The child of God doesn't try to to minimize her sins by comparing her sins to to the sins of someone else whose sins are, are greater. But when the child of God learns of his sin, when he sees the magnitude of his misery, he mourns. And if he doesn't weep on the outside, he certainly weeps on the inside. He cries out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And only then does he take comfort in the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Commenting on this beatitude, Sinclair Ferguson writes that the man who genuinely mourns over his sin has been drawn out of himself to see God and his holiness and grace. And it is this, his sight of God that makes him mourn. It's the sight of God that makes him mourn like that of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I have, I have seen the Holy One. I am a man of, of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The blessed mourner is like the psalmist in Psalm 130 who, who doesn't just mourn over having sinned against the law of God but who mourns for having sinned against the grace of God. The psalmist's sorrow stems from the fact that he hasn't just sinned against some tyrant in the sky but he is mourned against the very one who, who loves him more than anyone else in all the world. He's mourned against the Lord, the God of grace and kindness. And so it's not just fear of his sins being found out that overwhelms him, but it's the knowledge that he sinned against the God of grace. The saint's heart hurts because the saint has learned to hate his sin and to grieve over his sin in recognition that all sin is an offense against the God of grace. This Christian looks at, at all her sins the way that, that Peter looked at his sin of denying Christ and, and she says, how could I have done that? How, how could I have sinned against him of all people? It's one thing to sin against your neighbor. That's bad in itself, but to sin against the God of grace, how, how could I have done that? How could I have offended his majesty? How could I have attacked his glory and brought shame upon his name of all names? The child of God recognizes that he has done what God has said not to do, that he's left undone what God has said to do. And so he mourns, he laments. That's the kind of mourning that Jesus says is blessed by God. This is the kind of mourning that's blessed by God because we recognize that it's given by God himself. 
the mourn that Jesus is describing is not a mourn that comes naturally to us. As I said a few moments ago, boys and girls, it's natural to cry when, when you've been spanked. That comes naturally to us, to mourn over the consequences. But to mourn over the ugliness of sin itself, that, that only comes from the hand of God. Working in the heart to, to soften that hard heart, to make it tender, to make it sensitive to sin. And in his grace and mercy, that's what God does, isn't it? God graciously gives to us that godly sorrow that brings repentance. His grace melts our hard hearts in such a way that we mourn over our sin, in such a way that we learn to look to God for comfort. And so writes Ferguson again, the child of the kingdom knows higher joys as well as deeper sorrows, more sensitive mourning as well as more profound comfort. For although being spiritually stretched often involves pain, the pain of discovering the effects of sin, the pain of shame and grief of knowing just how twisted we have been, this is the first stage in discovering the comfort of the gospel. This is what all true Christians are marked by without exception, godly sorrow and, and lament for sin. Godly sorrow in the first place for our own sins and the, and the part that our own sins have played in, in offending God's majesty. And godly sorrow in the second place also for the sins of others, the sins of the world and the sins of the church. The Christian looks at the world and the Christian grieves. The Christian sees, for example, the total disregard for life, the total disregard for the sanctity of marriage. And, and the Christian grieves. The Christian says with with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Lord, on your servant, shine your face and teach me the statutes you have made. Rivers of tears stream down my face because your commandments are not obeyed. The Christian sees the sins of the church. The Christian sees where the church herself has fallen short and where her own sinful actions have tarnished God's name and the Christian grieves and laments. He said, illustrate in place like Ezekiel chapter 9. In the days of Ezekiel, there were still a few who had not forsaken the Lord, who had not brought shame upon the name of the Lord. And so God said to Ezekiel, pass throughout the city of Jerusalem and, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in the city. And so Ezekiel did. He went throughout the city and he put he put marks on the foreheads of the mourners, and they were not struck down with the rest. Ezekiel were to come to our church, would we all receive the mark upon our forehead? Are we mourning over the sins of the church? And we hear about another pastor who's fallen into grievous sin. Do we mourn? Do we weep and wail? When we hear about Abuse that's been covered up in the church as more cases come to light. Abuse that was covered up to save face and so that brings shame upon God's name. Do we mourn? Do we lament for the sins that take place in Zion? To be sure, the kind of mourning that our Lord is describing certainly includes and envelops mourning over the sins of others. But we recognize that it has to begin here. It has to begin here in my own heart. And only after that work its way out to, 
mourn over the sins of others, lest, lest I become conceited and think more highly of myself than I ought. I must never lose sight of the fact that I have, have offended God's majesty. You must never lose sight of the fact that you have, have grieved the Holy One. That you have sinned against God's grace. We must never lose sight of the fact that we have to pray continually and groan inwardly, praying to God to forgive us day by day. Blessed are those who mourn, says Jesus, for they shall be comforted. Do you believe that this morning? When you read through the book of Isaiah, one of the things you'll discover is that that's really all that the faithful remnant had to hold on to, the promise that those who mourn would, would one day be comforted. After 39 chapters of, of themes centering on judgment, God finally gets to Isaiah chapter 40 and he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is over and that her iniquity is pardoned. And then in Isaiah 61, God identifies the one in whom that comfort is ultimately going to come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, boys and girls, is the Lord's anointed whom the prophet describes in verse 1. Jesus himself is that primary speaker. He takes the words upon his lips at the start of his earthly ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is the one who comes to to bring good news to the poor. He's the one who comes to heal the brokenhearted. He's the one who came to comfort those who mourn in Zion. Jesus is the one who came, verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It sometimes is said that time heals all wounds. But that's not the case when it comes to the wounds of our sin, is it? Because when it comes to the wounds that have been inflicted by sin, those are wounds that time can't heal. But those are wounds that the Savior can heal. And that's what Isaiah is proclaiming in Isaiah 61. That the Messiah comes to those who mourn and he comforts them. He binds up, he mends the brokenhearted. Jesus alone, boys and girls, Jesus only can heal the hurting heart. Nobody else. To be sure, writes Ferguson, our mourning over sin involves our sense of guilt and shame. But it also involves the liberation from that guilt and shame. Christ comes to us as we mourn over our sins with our heads hanging low and lament. And he comes as the fulfillment of Psalm 3, verse 3, to whom we say, Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory, and, and the lifter of my head. In other words, when Christ comes to us in his grace and his power, he puts his healing hand under our chins and he says, look up. Lift up your eyes, sorrowing one, and look at me. Lift up your eyes, he says, and, and look on me. I am 
the resurrection, the life. In me, there is forgiveness in part and through me. You're brought into fellowship, restored with, with the Father. He comes to us in our mourning and he says, you need not carry the burden of your mourning on your own shoulders forever, hoping against all hope that maybe mourning will be over one day. He says, I've come to take that mourning upon my own shoulders and and that's what he did at Calvary, isn't it? As Christ hung upon the cross, all the weeping and wailing that should have been cried for our sins was placed upon him. We sometimes look at our lives and we wish we could, we could cry over our sins. We, we know our sin. We think, I should feel even worse about this than I do. But as Hebrews 5 says, Jesus, throughout his life, offered up his prayers with loud cries and many tears. Jesus cried for you. He wept over your sin. Knowing that that sin had offended his father. Knowing that that sin was going to be placed upon his own shoulders. He did that in order that we might be called oaks of righteousness as Isaiah 61 verse 3 says. That's the great reversal that Jesus accomplished for us. He came as the fulfillment of Psalm 103 as him who forgives all our iniquities and who heals all our diseases, who redeems our lives from the pit, who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And so those who belong to Christ experience something of, of this comfort already here and now as they continually keep their eyes fixed upon this Savior in the midst of their sorrow for sin. Already now we, we experience his healing hand. We experience his healing hand through the ongoing work of his spirit who, who convicts of our sin over and over again, who, who makes our hearts sensitive to sin. So that in the midst of our wounds, we can take comfort in Christ's wounds. Blessed are those who mourn, for they know already now the comfort of, of Hezekiah and Isaiah 38. When God saw Hezekiah's genuine sorrow for sin. When God saw that Hezekiah wept bitterly, what did God say to Hezekiah? Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. And behold, I will add 15 years to your life. As we sang from Psalm 56, God keeps count of our tossings and turnings. All of our tears are, are kept in his bottle. So we don't drown in our tears. He says, a day is coming when I'm going to pour that bottle out. No more tears. No more sorrow. Each of the Beatitudes has a present reality, but they also have a future hope, don't they? And that's what Isaiah 61 and Revelation 21 show us as well. They propel us forward to a day when sorrow and mourning will finally be no more. Isaiah speaks of a day when the ancient ruins shall be built up and when in place of our shame there will be a, a double portion whereby we shall have everlasting joy. And that's the, that's the picture the Spirit gives in Revelation 21 as well. As John sees this New heaven and new earth coming down from the heavens. The first having passed away. The sea no more. 
the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And as he heard that loud voice from the throne, as he heard Christ saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the sorrower's heavenward hope. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they who weep in the present, for they shall laugh with exceedingly great joy in the future. To quote Thomas Watson, this alone is the road that leads to the new Jerusalem. While there may be several ways leading to other cities where some can go in this way and others can go that way, there is but one way to heaven, and that's by the road of weeping. Although weeping may endure for the night, joy comes in the morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a paradox. It's a gospel paradox that the world cannot make any sense of. And the reason for that is because the world not only doesn't know the nature of true mourning, but the world doesn't know the nature of, of true comfort either. The world knows only worldly comfort, and so they don't understand and they'll never accept this paradox that those... <clears throat> who mourn are those who will be blessed. Those who mourn over the, the ugliness of sin will be, will be comforted. But the Christian knows true comfort. What is true comfort? True gospel comfort, says one theologian, really comes down to this. True comfort is a greater good over against a very great evil. True comfort is a greater good over a very great evil that, so that you can recognize the defeat of evil. And that's the comfort that Christ sets before us in the gospel. Isn't that the nature of, of the Christian's comfort at the cemetery? That as the Christian weeps, as Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, because the Christian knows that that this isn't the way it was supposed to be, that death is this ugly enemy, that even in the face of that great enemy and that great evil, there's a greater good, the resurrection. Isn't that the Christian's comfort in the midst of ongoing sin and struggles with sin? That in the face of the great evil of our sin, there is that greater good, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And his intercessory work, as we'll hear more on this afternoon. Those who mourn over their sin, over the brokenness that sin has brought into the world, will be comforted with a comfort that is unparalleled to anything the world can begin to offer. We need to believe that this morning. We need to keep our heavenward hope before us when rather than actually dealing with our sin and we're tempted to minimize our sin, we, we set the hope before us. We have to keep this heavenward hope before us, the hope of the new Jerusalem when we lament and mourn our sin and we lament and mourn how slow sanctification often feels 
in this life and how our sin hinders our communion with God and how our sin offends the majesty of God. We have to remember that there's a day coming we'll see God face to face without the hindrance of sin where pain and sorrow and tears will be no more. The Apostle Peter speaks of living this way as having a, a living hope. As you've perhaps heard me say before, a living hope. What is that? That's a, a faith on tiptoes, right? That, that peers over all the sorrows and pain of this life and, and sees those glorious comforts of the life to come. So that even as we mourn over sin as we ought to, we don't mourn unto despair as Judas did. We mourn over our sin with a view to the future. We mourn in hope that heaven and earth shall one day be joined together. This <clears throat> comfort that Jesus speaks of needs to touch down our present lives already now. Let it calm your hurting hearts as you continually look to the healing hand of, of the Savior for daily forgiveness and grace. Sometimes sorrow for sin can, can drive us to look elsewhere. Sometimes sorrow and guilt for sin can can cause a person to go to the bottle or, or to somewhere else for comfort, but that's not the way. This beatitude, you see, really presses two vitally important questions upon us this morning. The first is this, are you sorry for your sin? Are you sorry for your sin because of the ugliness of your sin? If not, then you need to be. But if you are, if you are sorry for your sin, the second question that this beatitude presses upon us is this, are you resting the promise of the gospel that you shall be comforted? In the midst of your sorrow, are you looking to the only Savior? Are you fixing your eyes on him and taking heart in the promise that when he comes again, he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes? tell you this morning that he who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon this, soon, this day described in Revelation 21 is not so far off. Christ is coming soon. He brings resurrection comfort with him. And so we pray even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you as your saints, and as your saints, our hearts hurt. We have hurting hearts, O Lord, because by your spirit and by your grace, we've come to see just how ugly our sin really is. Father, we pray that you would heal our hurting hearts with the Savior's healing hand. That as we learn of the ugliness of our sin, we would not mourn unto despair, that we would not drown in our tears. That we would keep the comfort before us that all our tears are kept in your bottle and you will take care of them. You will pour them all out on that last day and those tears shall be no more. We thank you, Lord, that you comfort those who mourn. And for the promise of this future comfort, this heavenward hope that you've planted in the hearts of your children. And Father, we pray that this comfort would be realized and actualized very soon. 
We pray that Jesus would come quickly, the Christ of all comfort. We pray that he would come today, that our mourning and sorrow would be no more. We long for that day when every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. We long for the new Jerusalem. Father, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.